Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. We have a very special episode for you today, episode 203. Uh, we have uh, Mr. Kevin McKernan uh, joining us again for a second time, talking about his new paper on COVID-19 and cannabis testing. Um, he's got some really cool stuff to talk us, to us about, about some advancements with some of the different testing methods he's been doing to test some stuff around the cannabis industry and some of the components that it inputs. So it's going to be really interesting to, to, to talk about and, and to learn what he's been working on. Um, thanks a lot for joining us, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Pleasure, uh, pleasure being here. I'd love to share what we're up to in this uh, COVID nightmare we're all running through. So hopefully everyone's safe on your end and it's not having too much disruption in your life. Oh, thankfully, uh, I'm on a farm in the absolute middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. So uh, we, we do a pretty good natural social distancing without having to try. So yeah. <laughs> it worked out well. We, and uh, we have plenty of food supply here uh, as well. So no worries. Um, we also have Roger from I Love Grow Marijuana. How is everybody doing tonight? I think you're going to really enjoy this new information that we're going to share tonight. So enjoy the show. And we also have Marty. Hey, what's up, everyone? AP Meds. <laughs> and then you have myself, uh, Steve, at Potent Ponics. And um, you can also find me at uh, True Aquaponics if you're looking for nutrient subscriptions for your aquaponics system or aquaponic nutrients. Uh, uh, and then you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast app or on uh, YouTube at uh, Potent Ponics. So thanks a lot, Kevin, for joining us. So tell us all about your, your new uh, paper. You've been working very hard on a lot of research around COVID-19 and cannabis. Um, please tell us all about uh, your research and, and what you've been up to lately. Sure. So um, I guess as just a primer to this. I've done a lot of work digging into the ancestry of the virus as well, and and uh, I'll I'll point people to a few other YouTube videos that discuss that. Um, that there's um, there's some interesting details in this virus. I actually don't think it's as frightening as the news is making that out to be, but that's probably doesn't bear much repeating. It's probably obvious to a lot of people. Um, yeah, there are certainly people getting sick, and this is a concern, but it's very much a concern for a specialized group of people. Um, and I think that's very much true in a lot of cannabis testing is we're really looking out for the immunocompromised and many of the things we're putting in place uh, are probably superfluous for a healthy individual. Um, so we, we got involved in looking at this um, somewhat dragging our feet in that we didn't really think COVID was going to be around long. Uh, we thought it was going to kind of buzz through. I still think it's kind of the second wave is probably going to be very weak, if at all. And uh, But I do think it's seasonal and it may be back in a different form next year. Um, but that being said, there were some people in Massachusetts that were getting sick at the grows, and then people didn't know what to do with any of the material they handled. Uh, how long does it last on cannabis? Does it replicate on cannabis? Is this thing a vector? Is it a fomite? Um, fomite's a term for something. It's a fancy term for um, what the virus might land on and then move it to somebody else, but not allow the virus to replicate on it. So, uh, and I think that's what we have here with cannabis is it's not a replicate host. There's no data for that, um, but it could potentially carry virus to another individual who might inhale it. Um, now, I don't think... Um, and, you know, the, the pyrolytics in most flames are probably going to kill this thing, but uh, there are some people vaporizing at lower temperatures where we don't know if that's the case. Um, most of the, the, um, 
the work on sterilizing for, for SARS-CoV-2 is using about 65C for 30 minutes. Not a very high temperature, um, but a long time. And what we don't have is what does 130 or 150C look like for a few seconds. Uh, that's information we, we still don't have in the cannabis field and our paper doesn't address that. Uh, and there are some challenges to addressing that because it's a bio level three pathogen and it's very hard to get your hands on live virus of this right now. Uh, and I don't think the CDC is gonna be handing it over to cannabis testing labs anytime soon. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we started making a test for this uh, just to pick up the RNA on the plant. And it really came out of the, the virus team at MGC who's been working on hops latent viroid and looking at lettuce chlorosis virus. These are plant viruses that do replicate in the plant but they're also RNA viruses, uh, which is very similar to the SARS virus in terms of that it's an it, RNA virus. Similarity. Can you hear me still? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so, so, we, so these RNA viruses are kind of uh, in our wheelhouse. And so we decided to try and expand this and test this on, uh, on cannabis to see, can the plant uh, harbor it or is it gonna kill the thing in like uh, you know 24 hours? Uh, there are some surfaces that were published that SARS-CoV-2 just doesn't last very long on copper surfaces, for example, but lasts like four days on plastic surfaces. And you know we're, we're storing a lot of our cannabis in plastic right now. So the, the plastic is just as much of a fomite as, as the plant. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So, so we started building tests for this uh, so that we could test a gram of cannabis. And it's a little bit trickier to do testing on cannabis than it is to do it on the nasal swabs. Uh, has anyone here been tested for, for COVID yet? Uh, if, you're, if you're way out in the woods, you probably aren't gonna encounter it, but yeah. it's a fairly unpleasant test where they shove a nasal pharyngeal swab up into your brain or into your cavity and not quite your brain, but it feels like your brain. And they collect as much uh, you know, cellular debris as they can on that swab, pull it out, dip it into a, a one ml of fluid, and then they end up PCRing a one two hundred and fiftieth of that fluid. Uh, so they end up they can't detect anything less than two hundred and fifty copies of the virus uh, that's on on the swab. Uh, we had to get down to those sensitivities, trying to pick out something out of a, a one gram cannabis sample uh, that's in fifteen mLs of fluid. So it's fifteen times harder. Uh, in essence, to get this done on uh, on cannabis. Um, so uh, we've got that now worked out. And that's what the preprint demonstrates is that uh, we we know we can detect this. Uh, we know how low we can detect it. Uh, we also know how long it can last on the plant. And, and we did study time studies out to about seven days that this can, can last the plant. But I want to be really clear. We've never found this on the plant. This is not something that we think is on cannabis right now, but it could be put there by people, by human contact or potentially by bat guano. Uh, and that's something that's probably worth you know, mentioning to your audience because I know your, your audience is, is quite aware of the benefits of using a lot of these other natural fertilizers. Uh, they're very important. I really believe in, in um, getting these organics to work and getting a lot of the beneficial microbes out of them. Uh, but the only, the, the main coronavirus discovery that's ongoing right now, they're finding most of it in bat guano. Uh, now, these aren't SARS-CoV-2. These are its ancestor, rat G13, usually, uh, or some other derivatives. So we don't know if, they're, if they can make zoonotic leaps, but uh, it's, uh, that's where people go if they want to find new coronaviruses, they sequence back one of them. Uh, so that, that's one thing we ought to be aware of if we're fertilizing. And uh, now, I've not seen any, any back one in the United States test positive. I don't even know if anyone's ever looked. They're really finding this stuff out in the depths of China. And so it, it may not even be circulating in, in bats in our country. 
Uh, that's something that's yet to be demonstrated. So uh, I guess just know your source if you're sourcing that stuff as to where it's coming from. And there are now some tools you might be able to use to, to test for it to see whether or not it's, uh, it's in fact, fact of risk. So that's where we started. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to monologue here on you. So I. Uh, I thought I'd at least throw it out for some questions. No, no, uh, that's very interesting. So, so tell us more about the potential for for someone to contaminate. You know, uh, maybe a, a dispensary employee, or uh, you know, in some states you have they allow people to smell those one pound jars and oh god, you have someone about cough or sneeze into that and. And, and have that and that could end up falling back onto the liability of a dispensary and that and, and they had no idea you know what I mean and yeah yeah, so, yeah so what is the actual real world potential for for that ha to happen based on the test results and the uh, that you found well so the interesting thing is is um there, there are some some intersections here with the cannabis field that we've got, we got to pay attention to so if you actually look at um uh at the at currently SARS-CoV-2 it it's this thing does not have, um, it's not necessarily lethal to a healthy person. Mo most of the deaths that we're seeing, probably over 95% of them, I think even Italy was closer to 98 or 99%, are comorbid patients. These are patients that have either diabetes, hypertension, COPD, or cancer. Um, so they're, they're immunocompromised in some way. And they tend to, the average age is like over 80. So it's a much, it's a much older vulnerable population that's getting these. However, as you know, in the cannabis field, cancer and COPD are commonly used. Now, I don't think people are inhaling it necessarily for COPD. They're probably using oils, but in cancer, there is some inhalation that goes on for people who are just trying to get quick access to pain meds. And um, they're dealing with cachexia and nausea, and they can't always take things orally because they throw them up and don't know what their dose is. So there is a lot of inhalation that, that is utilized in, in, in cancer um, uh, palliative care. Uh, so that's a concern that if we've got a population that in fact has um, similar or you know an overlap of the patients that might be users of cannabis also happen to be comorbid with these things and that that's that's one that's one flag to keep your eye on um, you know the second thing that um, uh, that we're seeing with this uh, as we mentioned there's fertilizers and there's people who are potentially human contact that could be going on here um, but there's uh, there's, there's also this potential risk that we're not properly um, uh, drying or curing this or potentially sterilizing the plant before somebody uses it. And that, so I think if we get into the extraction space, this isn't necessarily a concern. Uh, I think when you start getting into vaped flour, we have to start thinking carefully about it. I think that's probably the biggest vulnerability. That's where we have seen aspergillus take hold in some immunocompromised patients. There's a paper out there from someone by the name of Remington uh, and if you, if you Google Remington et al. and aspergillosis, you'll find, you know, case studies of people who are, who are dying from getting aspergillus into their lungs. And that's the one paper that did the responsible thing and actually sequenced the biopsy in the patient and sequenced the microbes in the vaporizer and, and found a match. Usually that's never done. It's usually associative. And I think that's, uh, that's an important thing to remember because as you're, you're going to see as I walk into this COVID story, um, Microbes are very ubiquitous and they come out when your immune system's weak, but you might actually be harboring them all along. And I think that's true in the case of some viruses as well. Uh, so when you look at um, the, the patients that are dying in COVID, 50% of them die with a microbial infection, a secondary infection. Aspergillus is one of those, Candida is one of those. Um, there's, a, there's a list of these things that when these patients get this virus, their immune system gets weak and other opportunistic pathogens take over. 
Uh, and so some of the complications are actually from the other pathogens, not necessarily from, from SARS, because usually by the time, sometimes your, your immune system is actually doing more harm than the actual virus. It's called a, you know, a cytokine storm. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of dynamics going on here, but you know we've got uh, we've got immunocompromised patients in the cannabis field. We have an inhaled product, um, and this is something that uh, you know you're you're starting to see places like China Institute um, uh, testing of all the meat now. They just announced today they're going to be screening all the meat only incoming though, which is weird. That might be political, but um, they're only, they they announced imported meat will be screened for SARS-CoV-2. Um, so. Our biggest fear is we just got off of this Avali thing. Uh, and I don't know if you guys followed that whole vape crisis, but if you look at some of the symptoms of Avali, uh, ground glass opacities in the lungs is one of them. And that's shared with COVID as well. Uh, a lot of these pens came from China. This, this, this predated this pandemic uh, and just kind of petered out of the news as this thing came to play. Now, no one found Valley to be contagious. I don't know if anyone really looked and considered that. And it might be a very hard thing to detect if there's a lot of asymptomatic spread with COVID. Um, so um, that, that's a, now that's a point that's in, in debate right now in the scientific field. How much is being spread asymptomatically? You know, the who is flip-flopping on this. I think a lot of the research is, 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 is kind of still being thrown about as to how, how much um, spread of the virus is happening through the asymptomatic um, population. But, uh, it's in debate if it's very high. Uh, what is known is that it's unlikely low exposure levels to the virus or what get you sick is you need to be in one of these parties or in like a super spreader event where you get exposed and hit with very high viral load. And that's what really kicks off the, the infection. So um, a lot of dynamics here to think about. I, I'm somewhat suspect that a cannabis plant unless someone directly coughed on it would get enough viral load that would end up in someone's lungs you know, a, a week later. But those are things that we need to be able to quantitate. We have some of the basic tools now to begin to do that, uh, but uh, there's, a, the, 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 there's one hole in what we can do without a BL3 laboratory is we can't tell you the viability of these viruses without propagating them. And I don't wanna get in the business of propagating this virus. Uh, so we've, been, we've just been measuring uh, the DNA levels uh, and the RNA levels, I should say of this virus. Uh, and that's something we, we can do. We've built some assays that do some like live dead assessments of this through, through en en enzymes, but we don't have the rock solid evidence of this thing growing as it comes off the plant. We just can see the RNAs there. Um, and uh, that, that's the same thing that the PCR tests are doing for patients as well. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why patients continue to PCR positive for a long period after their symptoms subside is we think that's just lytic virus. It's not necessarily contagious. It's just that your body's shedding the virus. Uh, but, but we don't know. We don't have those studies done yet because this thing is, needs to all be done in BL3 laboratories. So um, yeah, that's kind of the backdrop of what's going on is there, there are some, some unique aspects of the cannabis field. Uh, this being an inhaled product there being fertilizers and people that have come down with it that are handling the plant very manually and there being comorbids in the population uh, that intersect with the comorbidities in, uh, that we see in, in, uh, in COVID. So um, those are really the reasons why we kind of said, all right, we, we got to take it a little more seriously than just brushing this aside and hoping it goes away. Um, that our main fear, you're in a different state, but you know, during a valley, uh, Charlie Baker just shut crap down here. A bunch of vape shops just went out of business. They just closed them down, got rid of, made it illegal to do any flavored vapes. And I think most of the vape pens disappeared off the market and everyone went back to flour. And flour became extraordinarily scarce in Massachusetts for a period of time. 
Um, so I think a lot of people are still utilizing flour now because I don't think the vape pens have really totally re resolved in people's like um, collective um, comfort level. So there still is a lot more flour usage going on. Uh, but, you know, we get one wind yeah. of this getting into the cannabis field and we, we ex if they can shut down the NFL, they can shut us down. Oh, yeah. We're starting to see solventless come back as well. Uh, solventless production seems to be going up in a lot of places as well uh, where the, the vapes have kind of slowly died back. So it's been interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, more, people, more, people uh, more water hash, bubble bags. People are educating themselves on what they were actually intaking and then realizing that they still want to get high, but they, they want that clean product now. So yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so, so tell us more about this bat guano vector with the plants. I know I've done quite a bit, <laughs> quite a bit of study uh, and there's been, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> quite a bit of debate on the, uh, the side with- Is there a dry with, coffee um, out there, Steve? Oh yes, COVID cough. No, it's a it's, a, it's a, a dab cough. We actually got some nice, some nice uh, new check. If you're in o Oklahoma, we have some some Aqua Punch. Uh, oh, nice, a, nice. Really awesome. Uh, we have these giant, and yes, this is one one giant uh, diamond. Wow, um, THC diamond. So all live diamonds and sauce. It is smells amazing, tastes amazing, and as smooth as glass. So definitely look for that in your stores out there in Oklahoma but um uh so tell us more about this bat guano vector and 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 so I've, I've done a lot of study with with plant pathogens especially in aquaponics there's been a heavy amount of debate on whether or not you can actually transfer a lot of pathogens uh, University of Hawaii actually did seven years of study uh, on that specific problem on what how what types of pathogens they intentionally introduce pathogens and then just tissue sample study in both fish and plant tissue as well as fruit tissue leaf tissue stem tissue and all that stuff um, and they weren't able to find very many um, pathogens and you know you had to get to kind of psychotic load levels that were well beyond any kind of normal commercial you know anything yes. you would ever sanely do in a commercial farm uh, before it was actually transferring through because plants do have some level of filtration at that root system yeah. and then with the microbials that also help act as a defense. So what are you finding as far as the, the coronaviruses uh, as a general group uh, with the plants and, and the potential for them to maybe be uptaken through that? Or is it most, more about the direct contact with the plant tissue I, and I then the secondary contact? I think it's the latter. I, I would not, this virus wants an ACE2 receptor, which is nowhere in the cannabis genome. And I don't think it's going to find any entry into the plant. I mean, I've, to be honest, I haven't looked very deeply. I just, I kind of blankly wrote that off in my head that it's probably not risk. Um, I, I think it's more the fomite risk that it, you know, someone coughs on this thing or, or, you know, sticks into their nose while they're smelling it. Uh, and you get enough viral particle in there to potentially transfer to another person. Um, I, I was somewhat shocked the RNA lasted seven days and only it only went down about 150 fold across seven days that that surprised me because a lot of the other studies granted they were being done on with viability on Vero cells they saw a drop that was much faster than that in four days um, but uh, you know they're, they're measuring differently than we are and their, their system is probably more reflective of risk than ours uh, because they're looking at what if they can form plaques on, on monkey kidney cells um, so th that's uh, but, but, you know, it was our first, it was our first try at this. We just had to just figure out, you know, look, look at how long this thing lasts. What, is there any potential risk at all? If it disappeared in a day, it seems like there'd be a non-issue, but it's there a little bit longer than that at the moment. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of the, the aquaponics, you know, one, one thing that was, I don't think we've spoken since this, there's another paper we put out in January um, where we did a lot of sequencing 
42 different cannabis genomes, uh, some that were powdery mildew resistant, some that weren't, uh, and started combing through the genome for the genes that are involved in, in, in uh, resistance, pathogen resistance. And we found a few that we cloned and expressed in E. coli and started studying. But, the, the, but one's, one's a chitinase and one's a thaumatine-like protein, and the chitinase is most heavily expressed in the roots. Uh, so this is something that dissolves fungal cell membranes. Uh, by, by, by dissolving chitin, and, and the other one is, is a, a TLP or thaumatine-like protein dissolves beta-glucan. Uh, so those are two of the, of the really key features of a cell membrane that these things dissolve, and we can put those things in culture with aspergillus, uh, and those enzymes, now that we've expressed them out of the coli and have big vats of them, we can put them into TSB that we use to grow aspergillus to do typical aspergillus testing, and it whacks the growth down a hundredfold to a thousandfold. Uh, so it, they, they do have a real impact and do fight off aspergillus. Uh, and it's, an, it's really interesting that the roots are the things that are pumped, that, that have none of these things expressed, because the roots, I think, are trying to communicate with, with microbes, uh, particularly mycorrhizal fungi. Um, whereas the rest of the plant, the most heavily expressed gene in Jamaican lion is, is a chitinase, uh, more than THC synthase. Uh, so it is, uh, it's a heavily... Uh, heavily, heavily expressed uh, expressed gene, and one of the uh, I think key things for interacting with a lot of the uh, a lot of the microbiome. That's really interesting. Uh, when I was in Africa, we were having problems with grasshoppers and stuff like that, and we started doing a. a, a, a I'm, are you familiar with the Korean natural farming? I'm sorry. So, did you say what kind of natural farming? Korean natural farming, KNF, with the IMO collection, with the the rice collection of of local fungi, saprophytic fungi. No, no, no. I'd love to learn more about that. Oh, yeah. So that so they, you basically you take rice and you cook it um, most of the way and then you put it out in a box and you collect the, the fungi, uh, the mycorrhizal oh. fungi with that. And then you can culture that um, with sugar, mix it 50% with sugar to stabilize it. And then you can there, there's other steps you can do to yeah. make it further process it as well. So um, uh, what we were doing there was taking that replacing about a third of it with insect frass mixing that with the rice and then doing collection for for uh, shatan feeding microbes for that were directly feeding on a lot of the pests that were attacking the plants and, and having a good one but i wonder if um that also because they were directly feeding on the shatan i wonder if the byproduct was making it more available for the plants as well because it seemed like it also had a noticeable effect on, on any uh, molds and mildews we had as well even though it, it was mainly focused on feeding on the insects, at least as far as the insect frass being the source that we were using to collect it on. So oh, um, I, yeah, the insects all have chitin shells. Yeah, so so I, I was curious if that had played in, you know, maybe you have more thought into that, or maybe it's the liquefied chitinase from the lactobacillus mixed with the, the chitin, or not the, the lactobacillus, but the, the chitinase with the sugar in a liquefied form. You know, may, maybe that's the, the, the actual thing that was increasing the, the plant's resistance yeah, and the mold. It's good, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly those enzymes do break these these polymers down into monomer units, right? Into smaller, and those might be more um, digestible carbon sources for other microbes. Um, so there could be there could be a, a you know some of that going on. I mean, that's effectively like malting. It's very similar to malting and in, in, in making a mash and brewing is to break down some of these carbohydrates into smaller subunits so the yeast can actually ferment them. Uh, in fact, thaumatine-like proteins are often used for that. Uh, they, they, I mean, the assay that we have, interestingly enough, came out of the, one of the assays came out of the brewing industry. To measure the progress of your mash, you do a, a, what's known as a beta-glucanase assay. Um, really easy, simple to do the spectrophotometer. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, I know. I, I don't. That's a good question. I don't have as much background on, on like insect interactions. I mean, we've done some work sequencing, you know, russet mites. We, we've sequenced the russet mite genome just and we didn't even really look at it or study it other than to make a PCR marker just so we could have a test for it. It's really sad day affairs that you sequence someone's genome just to get a PCR test out of it. Um, but we can do that now. <laughs> it's really cheap. Um, and uh, and God, you know, I think the spider night spider mites got to be next. Uh, I know they've. I think that one's actually been sequenced, uh, and I, I believe it's the same one that's on cannabis. that's on other plants. I think the Broad Institute may have sequenced the the the, uh, the spider mite genome. Yeah, two spotted spider mite. Yep. And yeah, yeah, that thing's a pain in the ass. So we got to you know, hopefully that leads to something. But um, yeah, no, our our, uh, our efforts have been looking at what we want to do is get genes that are in some cannabis plants that are missing in others, and and express the enzymes. Uh, for those so that they can be used as, as supplemental, like, you know, supplemental enzymes. Uh, so we, Jamaican lions of pottery mildew resistant plant, and, we, and it's pottery mildew resistance, uh, we believe is maybe you, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't explain pottery mildew resistance in all plants, let's put it that way, because we've gone and sequenced a bunch of other people's plants, and they have different, a different collection of these, of these genes, there's like 80 of these genes. Um, and, uh, and, and so the the mo so there's probably convergent evolution going on here, where there's multiple different ways where plants can become pathogen resistant, and we just happen to characterize what's going on in Jamaican lion. But the enzymes, the two enzymes that we the lead candidates for all the activity, we pulled out, put them in E. coli, expressed boatloads of them, and then put them back in the culture, and we can see that they're functional. Now, you know, now now the question is, is it economical to utilize this as a spray when everyone can just do sulfur burns or use hydrogen peroxide or something? It, it, it may not be as uh, as economical. We, we we don't know those numbers yet. We have to dive well, into that. But the downside is when you do sulfur burns, it makes your your hash taste like matches. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's. <laughs> I don't know. What about the other treatments out there? I mean, what do you guys use? So, so actually, that... so for for powdery mildew, so. Uh, I've found nothing works better than lactobacillus, hands down. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, but yep. then uh, a rotation of bactillus subtilis, bactillus pamillus. Those things uh, probably make kinases. Uh, on rotation with labs works awesome. Uh, and then um, uh, the other thing that I recently learned, and this was per advice of breeder Steve, is cooking the greenhouse. He goes, in Colombia, we don't have, we can't import all that crap. He goes, we just cook the greenhouses. He goes, powdery mildew can't survive above 95 degrees Fahrenheit very long. So you just run it above 95 degrees Fahrenheit for one hour a day for seven days in a row. And, you know, it's very oh, hard brilliant. for that to live. So, you know, uh, it's something that we're working, experimenting with here in Oklahoma as a prevention. But I'll tell you what, we started running it three times a week above 95 degrees just for an hour. And it is, I mean, I've found three leaves in over a month and they were on some, you know, one week plant it was on one single plant. And that was it uh, wow. over the course of, of that whole time. And that's in a greenhouse, an aquaponic greenhouse with all this high humidity. And I mean, basically perfect conditions if you're right, going right. to actually predict where to grow it. And we don't have any problems, you know what I mean? Are, but we're doing plants? probiotic sprays and, and, and good ventilation and good air movement and we don't have problems. Well, that's going to be better than you. I mean, uh, the labs are great, lactobacillus, but they, they, you do run the risk, depends on what state you're in, you run the risk of, of failing total robot counts with if those. In flour, yes. I would never use it in flour, but this is, I'm talking veg and clone production and mom production. I see, yeah, early in, on. Yeah, in, in, by the time yeah, in flour, in flour, you're stuck. And this is, this is where it gets tricky, especially if you're trying to do something organic. You know, I, I, you know I, after week four, you really can't use Bactillus pamillus or Bactillus subtilis and still pass uh, colony forming unit testing if they're going to do bacterials. So they'll, they'll 
because they'll they'll grow CFUs because they just put it on an agar. They just yeah, roll yeah. an agar plate. And they, they don't, don't they don't care what's on there. They're just exactly. oh, yeah, they're just blindly counting colonies. Exactly. So so you know, and there's all different types of ways to make sure your sample is uh, sterile yeah. before you send it in, which which uh, which you know you can decide if you need to do that or not based on your methodology. But um, you know the the best you know what you really need to do is educate your your regulators on being able to test for different pathogens and not just doing these plate 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 camp. Yeah, yeah, we're working hard on that, and I think we're making some headway in a few states where the the uh, and you provide some of the best hardware. And you provide some of the best hardware for people to be able to do that. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your, the qPCR and stuff for those of you that maybe uh, aren't familiar with your stuff and, and maybe. Uh, yeah, sure. yeah, sorry about that. So um, we make a lot of the, the test reagents for, for testing for aspergillus, E. coli, salmonella, what have you. Um, we have an arrangement with, um, with Agilent to, to uh, we have instrument deals so we can help you guys get the instruments and the reagents. Um, these are quantitative PCR instruments. This is the tool that's being used for COVID testing. You know, all 100% of COVID testing right now is on quantitative PCR platforms because it's it's just the most sensitive tool out there for diagnostic testing when when you know medical issues are on the line. Um, so uh, that aspergillus assay right now is out. It's just getting its. Uh, we, we've had one out there that that tests for Flavus fumigatus, Niger, and Terius. Uh, we just updated that one to be a five color assay. So it speciates these things on the fly. In the past, if it triggered, you didn't know which one of the microbes it was. You just knew you had aspergillus. Uh, now some people are asking, can you speciate it? And so uh, we've, we've um, turned that into a, a multicolor test. Uh, we also make some um, PCR tests uh, for sex testing uh, and for testing for THC, CBD, genetics in the plant. Um, the paper we published back in January, you can discern the, the class of plant that you're going to have genetically. We, we can't yet tell you whether you're going to break 0.3. We're getting closer on that. But we can tell you if you're going to be a type 1 plant, a type 2, type 3, or a type 4 plant just from the genetics alone. Um, where, where we're putting a little more effort right now is tracking the cannabichromine genes because those seem to be another source of potential leaks. I think CBD synthase is the largest leaker we've got out there. So if you're making type 3 plants, it's going to always leak some THC on you because of that gene it's and it's hard to get rid of that unless you go to a cbg plant that doesn't have one of those genes in which case you can get uh, you can get the ratio even better uh, however what's leaking on the seat there is still residual amounts of thc on the on the cbg plants uh, and we think those are probably coming from the residual the cannabichromine genes that are in some portion of the population there are a large host of plants in the population that don't have a cannabichromine cluster it's it's like a two megabase deletion in the plant and some plant some plants don't have that so um, interesting enough, on that same two megabase stretch, there's like four or five other genes that are involved in pathogen response. So, uh, when that when that that cannabichromine gene is deleted, you're losing some aquaporin receptors and a couple other things you got to keep your eye on. So, we make a lot of these genetic tools that test for this. Um, that's that's the um, the Agilent Aria that does 96 well quantitative PCR. Uh, we were also rolling out a SNP chip right now that ha does uh, 90,000 SNPs. Um, this is getting uh, done. This is done on an Illumina platform, but it's being run through Eurofins. Eurofins is a network of labs all over the world. They have some some great labs up in Canada, and I think there's one in Longmont, Colorado. Uh, but this will um, this will test for genetic diversity. It will test whether the plant's male or female. It will give you the type one, two, or three status, uh, and then a host of like 50,000 different coding variants in the plant, and some evenly spaced markers throughout the genome. We, we've got the flowering genes on there. We've got 
The canflavin pathway is in there, which is something that we're really interested in. And there's some ties to COVID to that, hopefully we'll touch on. Um, and, and a host of other genes that, that people have asked us to track for them are all printed onto that chip. So uh, those are just going through validation right now. Um, the data's in Illumina's hands are doing some cluster clustering analysis on this, and uh, we'll probably have some of the first data this week on, on the, the first uh, 100 or 200 samples that are run through that. So a lot of tools that you could use to do um, accelerated breeding. Awesome. Really, really appreciate all the hard work you're doing. Um, uh, I wanted to circle back to something you had, had mentioned earlier that I, I had I had written a note for it and we had gone and gotten off and I wanted to circle back. So you've actually worked with lettuce chlorosis virus and I've actually had the displeasure of seeing that twice uh, when aquaponic facilities convert from large scale DWC lettuce production with tons and tons and tons of seeds all the oh, time, wow. co-grow with cannabis. <laughs> and it can them not paying attention either with pruners or an insect biting one and the other, or a, yeah, the exact yeah. thing, I don't know, yeah, or if it's water. Uh, we've also had some suspicion as whether or not it's actually water transferable for some short period of time. Uh, we don't actually know for sure, but the fact that they're directly next to each other, sure, you know, sure as heck makes it easy. Yeah. Um, so I've seen that twice now in facilities that were converting over, and you, you, you're probably one of the only other people that has actually done any amount of you know, work or even seen it. So please tell us more about the work that you've done with it and the testing stuff and, and what, you know, you, you've learned. Yeah, so th here's the thing about RNA viruses are really difficult to get your hands on. Um, for one, anyone who thinks they, they have one of these things isn't really receptive to asking them to save it for you so you can come poke around with it. Uh, so we've had a really hard time actually getting samples of these that are known confirmed viruses. So, so what we do in those scenarios um, it's a little bit like SARS, is we design the RNA targets for these things, uh, and we practice making our tests work on these synthetic targets. Uh, and, and until someone actually sends us material that has virus on it, which by the way, doesn't go across state lines very easily right now. So we're kind of relegated to, to, to either shipping our kits to you or to collaborators to try and work this out in the, in the field where it's happening, or folks in the field being able to do RNA purification and send us the RNA. Um, the latter one's a little tricky. You got to have some experience handling, uh, doing pipetting and handling RNA. So at the moment, we're reaching out and placing some test kits in a variety of uh, labs out there to look for these viruses a little bit more remotely to, to where they're happening in, in California and other places. But we can tune and calibrate all of these tests by feeding it synthetically, uh, you know, synthesized RNA that's identical to the RNA of those viruses so that we know the sensitivity of our test. I think where the questions come into play right now are how many times do you have to sample the plant? because I doubt a single whole patch of this thing is gonna nail it. You're gonna probably have to sample it five or six times. Uh, we might need some swabbing techniques to cover the, like, the surface and get a little bit more concentration of the surface area into the test. Um, those are the things we're trying to work out right now is how many times, how many tests you gotta run to know a plant's clean. Uh, we don't know that number and, right now. We, and you ran into some weird stuff with that too when you were doing the hop latent stuff or you know with the hop latent stuff no i don't maybe it wasn't you but i know when they were doing the hop latent testing they test one side of the plant and it has it and the other side doesn't and, oh yeah you know, that's probably you know, jeremy's work up at dark heart yeah yeah they're, yeah, they're sorry, yeah yeah the, the dark heart sorry, yeah yeah they they're actually pioneered the space we're really following them on this they they're the ones who found it and we just decided to make some tests that were multicolor that um some folks can, can try and use 
Uh, there's another group in Israel that found the lettuce chlorosis stuff as well, and, and we've just been working with uh, with their materials. So we're standing on the on the, on the shoulders of those giants uh, on this study. But um, so yeah, last I spoke to him, he was sampling it like four or five times to try and find this, and uh, it's not clear. I, I I spoke to him as CanMed, so I haven't seen him in a bit. But um, his uh, you know his advice was you know you can't get away with just a single sampling. So we're you know we're we're looking at some te techniques where we can take ten samplings and pool them into one test, so you don't have to do ten times the number of tests to get this done. Uh, and that's kind of a study that's ongoing right now: is is can we pool multiple samplings into a single vial and then and and ultimately concentrate that material and test a, a, and test more efficiently. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of interested to see where those go because it, the, those papers are both very interesting. But I do think that sometimes the phenotypes these viruses present on the plant aren't that clear. I mean, we've had a lot of people. Uh, um, so prior to us having these two viruses, we had other tests for something known as cannabis cryptic virus and hops and another hops virus, the HMLV or something, right? So, and people would send us in things they swore had viruses. They always thought it was tobacco mosaic virus. And we'd run these tests on them and we'd never get hits. Um, so I think there's a lot of... Um, pleiotropy, if you will, of, of phenotype, that, that you get uh, what looks well, like one disease can actually be multiple different diseases if you don't molecularly characterize well, it. Especially with mosaic. I mean, what, there, uh, it, through Israel, I know there was a paper on lettuce chlorosis virus cannabis published in the last two years, and they cited a whole bunch of mosaic virus studies from an Israeli group. I believe it was with 12 or 14 different mosaic viruses, and it was Arabis, lavender uh, alfalfa mosaic cucumber mosaic tobacco mosaic tobacco streak virus hemp, hemp mosaic virus they, they've documented a whole wide range of them now and and it's like how many of the different mosaic viruses can transfer to cannabis or just like the the beet leaf curl virus or, uh, and some of the others it's like how many of that group can transfer and, and how you know there a lot of these are, are groups of viruses that are now being documented in cannabis tissue and it's like how many of that family can jump to cannabis? Yeah. Let's get scary. So what, here's the thing with this is I, I, I suspect the next few years, we're going to see an explosion of discovery in viruses because, you know, part of the reason this COVID crap is happening is, is that our viruses are harder to sequence than bacteria and fungi. They're smaller, but bacteria and fungi, it's really easy to know that they all have at least a ribosomal operon that you can amplify, right? There's universal regions that exist in, my, in microbes and fungi that you can amplify and sequence them. There's good tools for fishing for these things. The viruses though, there isn't like a universal sequence that you can use to go and amplify and hunt for these things. So you have to do very laborious um, next generation sequencing and RNA sequencing experiments to sort these out. And you've gotta be really careful harvesting it off the plant. You gotta make sure that you get you don't get any RNAs involved when you're doing this. So, um, you know, hunting for these different viruses, there's, a, there's, there's just a lot more work in doing it. And, but now we, we're primed with the information that we need to go look, right? We're, we're starting to get fruit from doing this. In multiple different labs, quickly once they point the gun there. Uh, and, and, now, and now that that I think that pace has been set, I think more and more people are going to turn and say, "Okay, I think I have a virus. Let's just give it a shot. Let's send it off for some for some next gen sequencing and see if we can pick it up." Um, you know, the the bacteria and fungi are far easier. You know, if you have any question on that, we can readily amplify those a, a single PCR reaction and get it in a sequencer and know what it is. But the viruses really require um, a lot more care and to go after. It's it's it. 
it's odd considering how small they are. But um, I mean, I think the same thing is true in COVID that um, there are a lot more of these coronaviruses are finding circulating and they've been around. This thing has ancestors. They just weren't as symptomatic. So we ignored them and no one went hunting for them. Um, but now we're finding there's patients that have prior coronaviruses that are protecting them from this one. Uh, so that, that's, uh, that means the, the immune repertoire that we have, the, the, the antibodies out there throughout the human population, it's, it's not correct to call this thing a novel virus anymore because uh, it's not going to be hitting a, an immunonaive population. It's going to be spreading through the population with the brakes on because it's going to bump into a lot of people that already have immunity. Uh, and that, that's, that was never anticipated in the models that, that created this economic shutdown. That was kind of ignored or, or just, I think everyone, I think there's a publication bias. Uh, you, you, you find something that hasn't been in the database before and you scream Eureka, it's novel, and, and it gets broadcasted pretty heavily through the peer review system that way, uh, when reality is it probably wasn't that novel, we just haven't looked in other places. And the way in which this virus is jumping around between mammals, like you're mentioning these viruses that may be jumping around between plants. We're seeing that, now we've seen SARS in, in minks. There's a bunch of minks that are being, um, being euthanized this week over in Europe, unfortunately. Um, but minks have it, cats have it, ferrets have it, tigers have found, they found it in tigers, they've uh, found it in old, earlier versions they found in camels, but not this one. Um, you know, so it's, it's gone, it's in penguins, it's in bats. So this thing seems to bounce around between anything that's mammalian. Uh, and they've even documented it going into minks and coming back out and infecting other humans. So um, I, I'm somewhat suspect that that promiscuity is new. I, I think it's probably been happening for a really long time throughout this virus's history. It just didn't create a fuss and we weren't paying so much close attention to it. Um, at least that's what the antibody data seems to, seems to imply. So. I do think we need to think of these viruses as things that can hop between plants. Uh, the ones that are in mammals are hopping. Uh, so um, there is good reason to believe the tobacco mosaic virus may in fact hop, but it just may be mutated enough that people are calling it hops mosaic virus. Uh, and that's probably the more likely recent ancestor in hops than tobacco. Um, that might be true for these lettuce sclerosis viruses and, and uh, the, the, the viroids. The viroids are even more interesting. Those things don't even have protein coats on them. I'm, I'm just stunned that they propagate and, and survive. Yeah, but isn't it, isn't it true that most of the viroids have to be directly transferred through contact and they're not? Yeah, really... they have no dispersal mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, 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 so it has to have an insect bite or dirty tools or some kind of other direct contact. Yeah. 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 And I, it's really a good question about the, the mosaics. I mean, are the, the mosaics require the same thing or do they think those things somehow get so, 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 okay, through my experience, I have witnessed, in fact, I have really good pictures of a grow where you can see the strain that had it and the, in the mom room, I could see the mom that it came in on, you know, this mom very clearly has it throughout the whole plant and, you know, scattered throughout the leaf, the leaves, and then the clones have it. And then you could see in the secondary veg room where someone had not cleaned their pruners right at a grow I was consulting on. And then the other plants down the row, other strains had it, whereas in the mom room and in the other rooms, they weren't expressing it at all. So as best that I could tell from the fact that this had been going on for weeks and or months and months and months is that they were trimming it and not cleaning their tool, you know, the pruners and then transferring it over because I was only seeing it in those strains after they were it moved on and not in the moms ever 
So it wasn't because they, and the moms, they, each mom had, had its own tools, uh, its own pruner uh, because of the way this place was laid out. Whereas they didn't have that same situation in, in the bedroom, obviously, because they have more plants. So um, that was just the way that they had. Maybe it, it wasn't even every plant, but they had it for every strain, right? So each strain had its own set of tools in order to prevent any kind of issues. Well, that, that was how I was able, one of the ways I was able to determine it, but the fact that you could just see it blatantly down the line and then see the progression of infection, you know, based on how, how far it was in the plant, um, it's, at least to me visually seemed pretty obvious. And I've seen a whole bunch of that where you could see it and maybe in one or two strains. And then, you know, one, by the time it makes it into flower, you can see it into a whole bunch because people aren't being clean. Yeah, well, I mean, there you go. I mean, you're, you're cutting right into the plant and going through a lot of those defenses, getting right to the vasculature. I mean, can you imagine if we like were, were, would trim fingers on people during COVID, like how quickly it spread? <laughs> we worked and we weren't like changing the scissors. Yeah, yeah, that's a prime that's a prime way to, to make these things move. Um, uh, so 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 uh, so what types of viruses do, if at all, do you have the ability to test for with your stuff currently, or is that something uh, you're so right working? right now? There's a yeah, we have a test that uses an RT a qPCR. That's a reverse transcriptase PCR that goes after hops latent viroid, lettuce chlorosis virus, and I think cannabis cryptic virus is the other one that's in there. Um, granted, these are, we we know how to run these and target positive controls that are in the kits. Uh, where we're looking um, to collaborate with people on is, is figure out what's the right way to use these things. Cause we're kind of shooting in the dark in terms of where do you test on the plant? How frequently do you test on the plant? Right now we're just doing hole punches on leaves and, and hoping, hoping for the best. Um, and, and, the, and the questions that are outstanding is you need to do 10 holes, you know, five holes or one hole uh, to really know what's going on. And do you have to target this on, on like a deformation on the leaf that you think is, is, is got a higher viral load. Um, so th those, those sorts of studies are going on, but we're open to hear about other ones that might be out there. Um, and of course we can pick up SARS-CoV-2, but I, you know, that's not something I think you're going to see go plant to plant. It's going to go person to plant maybe, and maybe, or maybe fertilizer to plant, but it's not, I don't expect that to replicate and, and bounce onto another plant. It's going to be, you know, honestly, I think that's really more of a trimming issue, um, because I think the lights and a lot of the conditions in the grow would probably nuke that thing in, in a matter of days, not a week. It's really... Uh, if people are coughing on this uh, at the counter, as you're saying, or in the or in the trimming process, where it might get there and you happen to get to a patient within a week, um, but you know, the, you know, the, the 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 point I think of cleanliness in, in in the dispensaries is probably really important. You don't want people sticking your nose or their fingers on these things at the moment because uh, we've got a current a pandemic out of, out of that's currently out there and. And while you know young people aren't necessarily affected by this, um, I, I think we really have to be cognizant of the political ramifications because people aren't being rational right now. Uh, if they can shut down the NFL and and they can shut down the music industry and they can shut down pretty much every industry at whim, I'm just baffled why we haven't been shut down yet. Uh, and I don't want to give them any reason. So while, while people may never use this test or use it very frequently, if this virus goes away all of a sudden, um, we want it as an insurance policy. So that's not the excuse. This ever does break out and it gets blamed on a dispensary, we can be there at a moment's notice to say, "There's a test for this already. We can handle this. Let's just start screening." Uh, but um, it, it's not something we want to get caught flat flat-footed on. If you look at what happened with COVID, reason we got so hammered with COVID here versus a lot of how the, a lot of other countries handle it is they had their testing in order. The CDC did not have their testing in order, and I've been a pretty pretty vocal. Um, vocal about that uh, and, and various social media platforms. So I'm the last guy who can be complaining about the CDC's lack of doing this and then just ignore doing it in our own industry. 
So we figured we're just going to lead by example, make a test. If it doesn't get used, who cares? It's a responsible insurance policy to do for the industry uh, because it's, it's probably a lethal event if it ever shows up or it'll be a shutdown for a long period of time. And what I don't like about these shutdowns is they tend to basically watch, you just watch Wall Street eat Main Street. I mean, all the small businesses get crushed and the big ones are the ones that are left standing at the end of them. Uh, and we're certainly seeing that in other industries. And, uh, you know, we've had enough of that already in the cannabis industry. We don't need an accelerant to that process. Absolutely. So, so is there any other, aside from bat guano, is there any other, is there any other um, potential sources of viruses or other pathogens as far as organic inputs? Uh, since we're on the topic of, of, of potentially pathogenic um, of uh, nutrient sources, uh, what are the other ones maybe aside from bat guano that people should maybe uh, look out for or avoid? Would seabird guano be equally as dangerous? Uh, or question. what I are mean, some of the other ones out there that might be, you know, people should use caution or maybe they should pasteurize it themselves before using in their gardens? I, I haven't seen any evidence of this being in birds yet. There, there's, an, there's an interesting paper that looks at um, the spike protein and also looking at ACE receptors in a whole bunch of organisms. And, and of course, all the mammals have really similar ACE receptors. And so they, they kind of classified, you know, whales, whales and porpoises were really high on the list, actually. In fact, I, that, that's one theory people have kicking around is that maybe these wet markets are actually selling whale meat or, or porpoise meat, because that's known to happen in some of these clandestine wet markets, but uh, that that's a more likely host for the virus than necessarily bats, if you look at the, the receptor stuff. But um, but that's all, you know, no one's seen it there. Um, no one's seen it in pigs yet, but people are expecting to find it in pigs. Um, so I'd say anything that might be mammalian sourced. I mean, the, the one thing that is known about SARS-CoV-2 is the highest viral loads are in feces right now. Uh, they, they, and they persist in, in the GI for a long time after your symptoms clear. Uh, at least the RNA does. We can, the people are PCR positive on feces for the longest period of time long after it's left your nasal uh, pharyngeal um, cavity. So, uh, so that, that's, th th those are the only areas that I could suspect they might be in. But again, we've not seen this. Uh, it's not been tested yet. This is, these, are all, these are all hypotheses that, 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 that need to be explored. So I, I don't want to create any panic that all, you know, you can, no one can use any mammalian-based fertilizer because of this. We, we really need to just go look. Um, because chances are these things probably are sterilized. They're probably old. I don't think the virus may not last long in the manure for all we know. So um, there, there's, there's a lot of questions. Um, and of course, you know, no one's taking this stuff and putting it right in the flower, right? They're putting it at the, in, in the soil at the roots. And I doubt this virus crawls its way up to a flower and gets into a, into a, into a growing room. So um, these are all lightning strike types of things that we're talking about. There's probably a bigger risk of actually human contact uh, and that's something that we should pay attention to in in a lot of the in a lot of the manual steps of managing this post curing. Curing, it's a good question, but I bet curing probably accelerates the demise of this thing. So it's really contact after curing that's that we should probably be keeping our eyes on. Oh, so we had a question from chat, and I, this is a pretty simple question, but uh, um, uh, can insects carry viruses? And and maybe the better question is which insects are the best vector for viruses? I know leafhoppers and whitefly are probably the, the most notorious, but what are some of the other ones that you, you, you know of uh, as far as insect vectors for viruses? 
So I don't, I've not seen any papers on SARS getting transmitted uh, through through insects, but your you know the lettuce sclerosis virus paper has white fly transmission demonstrated. So that that's probably the clearest cut case and and, and demonstrated on cannabis. I think that's the um, that's where we have a lot of just a big publication and knowledge gap is is you know these insect studies on cannabis. Everyone's doing them on other on other plants, and and it's not always fair to just superimpose that work on the cannabis. Uh, but hops is probably your best place to look, to look at, you know, insect transmission of viruses and hops. It's probably uh, the best Google area that will lead to something that might be meaningful in cannabis. Uh, I, I know I've also seen um, evidence for leaf hoppers for uh, a beet leaf curl virus in cannabis as well. I've, I've seen that firsthand in, oh, yeah, in yeah. Oregon. There may have been a, a recent paper on that in hemp. I think a few more. Yes. Just popped yes, there was out of Oregon. Yep. Yeah. Or someone out of Oregon, yeah. Um, uh, so, is there any other viruses out there, maybe that you you're seeing or have been exposed to, but maybe you're kind of working on trying to get a, a, prof a profile for or anything like that? What are, What are some of the ones out there that that you've seen? I know I've seen a wide range of different pattern mosaics, and I've seen two d distinct different types of leaf curl virus. In my opinion, leaf curl virus, but very distinct, where everything else is fine except for couple of plants that are very clearly infected with something that has a this this gnarly leaf curl um, compared to some of the others yeah so uh, it's a really good question I think the virus field is is really at an infancy in cannabis at least for us understanding it and molecularly characterizing it. and obviously people have been fighting these things for a very long time in the field but um, that you know the microbes have really been where we've been putting most of our effort mainly because they're so heavily regulated but um, the, the, and the viruses are also harder to go survey. So uh, they're harder from both the technical standpoint of sequencing them, but they're also harder from collecting them out of the field in legal manners in which people can get them to our lab. Um, you know, RNA degrades very quickly. So asking someone to drop a sample in the mail from Oregon to us, uh, it, it's not gonna make it here intact. Uh, so, and it's, it, you know, it has to be below 0.3 and all that stuff, which is probably doable nowadays, even with some, some leaves, but at least maybe even type three leaves. But, um, or type two and type three leaves, but the the uh, there's all these barriers to doing the RNA work well. So we're really trying to reach out to people who are interested in this field, who have PCR instruments closer to grows that can get access to tissues, uh, to try to work out what are the best ways to to deploy these things. Um, so yeah, I, unfortunately, I only have those those four to talk about. So so here's a question for you. So say if someone's a a, a, a not maybe a backyard breeder or someone that's uh, maybe has a facility and they're trying to get going, uh, they, they're interested in this, right? They, they've heard this, they're, they're really all about it. Um, they wanna go and buy a qPCR. What else do they need? Can they just take plant tissue, squish it up with whatever else comes with the tools that you have, put it into a vial and you know, I, how does this work? And what, do so, they need to have a big background or is it pretty plug and play or, or do they have to have quite a bit of training or do they need to have a bunch of other equipment? Uh, what, what, what does this kind of stuff look like on a, on a real world setting for people that uh, are just maybe have no background and want to get into this? Okay, so th there's a couple of different tiers. We, we have like kind of high-end instruments that people use in the, in the cannabis testing laboratories that can do 96 samples at a time in five different colors. And, and those, are, those can be like 20 grand. They're, 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 um, they're real professional gear. Then we have two other layers of platforms we're, we're beginning to roll out there that have varying degrees of capabilities. There's a, a Kai bio station now that I think is like eight grand that has 16 different wells and you can do sex testing and THC CBD genetic testing on that thing in like 90 minutes um, across like uh, 
eight different samples if you do two different assays. Like most people and the way we play around with that stuff is doing XY detection and then CBD typing, whether it's type one, two, three, or four, we can get off of two assays across eight samples and that thing. And then you can flip that thing like every 90 minutes. It's a really slick box, it's a nice web interface. Um, but you do need to be able to pipette. pipette. Um, it's not hard, I can show people to do it right here. I've got a setup in my lab. Uh, you know, these are just fancy ways of moving around. My, my background's not gonna let you see this, uh, of moving around fluids. Uh, simple pipette, if you know how to use these things, you can move 100 microliters around. Most of the assays are run off of a four millimeter um, hole punch. And I have one of those floating around here too. Now we'll do a little show and tell. So hey, can you, uh shut off your thing just so we can see your tools better since you're yeah let me see if i can get that uh background turn on a video choose virtual background and then you just hit none there get rid of that all right all right now we can see i can see okay so this is a this is a p20 pipette the little little dial here allows you to basically increment how much fluid you're going to move around. Most of the reactions we do are under 100 microliters. So you might need a two or three of these pipettes that, that do different gauges. This handles 20 microliters, other ones handle about 100. Um, this is a typical eight tube strip. Uh, you put 100 microliters of a lysis buffer in there and you want to get a piece of leaf tissue about that size in there. And the way you do that is you get something from China right now. This is a grommet that you might see on your shoe, that for your shoelaces, makes for a really nice disposable way of biopsying a plant to give you a perfect diameter. And it happens to fit beautifully in one of these. That's, just, you know, that's kind of a hack. I get, Wendell gets credit for this. I think Wendell's the one who, uh, who's at Pheno Express who came out with this really clever way of just uh, sampling, sampling these things. Um, and then uh, usually use a toothpick or a pipette to pop the sample in there. This goes and boils for 10 minutes. And when you're done, there's enough DNA in the solution that we can pick it up with all the assays. And that's what we use to go after the RNA viruses is what we use to go after the, um, the boils a little bit subtly different with the RNA just to not destroy the RNA, but it's still done in 10 minutes. And then once this is, um, once you have the DNA in there, you usually then pipette a little of that out with a different pipette. If you really want to go into semi-pro mode, you get one of these multi-channels. So you can do, you know, a whole bunch in one shot, but uh, that, that might be, uh, you know, genius level material. Um, so <laughs> once you have these in here, you move the boil into a different set of tubes that have your PCR reagents in them. Uh, and then this little device, this is an $800 device. Now, the, the reason this is different than the Kaibio is there is nothing on here to read it other than your eye. So when this thing is done doing PCR, this thing needs to change, change color so your eye can figure out what it is and call it. And we have reagents that do that. It'll change from pink to yellow if there's a, if there's a Y chromosome there, for example, or if there's a CBD gene or a THC gene. Any marker in the plant we can design an assay for that will change color on a field portable device. This thing goes Bluetooth to your phone and just gives you an interface to, to set it up and, and run. These are around eight or 900, no, this is an eight channel one. These are 500, there's a 16 channel one that I think is like eight or 900 now. Um, they've put one of these on the space station. I mean, it's that 
that's that light and simple to use. So all the, the, the space stations or biology is getting run off one of these things. Um, so that's one technique we have that's kind of lower entry that gets people so they can start doing this. Um, uh, we've had a, a few grows start here and then they walk their way up as they get more familiar. This is kind of like training wheels. Uh, the training wheels, they don't go as fast. They have error rates. Uh, they're a little bit higher error rate with this color metric test than what we do fluorescently. When you use the quantitative PCR machines fluorescently, the, the accuracy is dead on. Uh, these things, you're cutting some corners to make this happen. And the sex testing on this is probably like 98% accurate when it's like over 99.9 on the, on the qPCR stuff. Um, so anyway, that, those are some of the tools. And, and, and we're using this now to go after viruses, to go after the genetics on the plant. And, and eventually, we're going to put a lot of the microbial tests into this format as well. So if people want to scan if they've got any microbial risk really quickly before they send it off for testing, uh, some of these things may, may come into play. Uh, we know of a couple grows now that are, that are pulling in this equipment because they're trying to just get sterile in the grows and monitor their airflow systems, uh, monitor some of the filters they have at certain places to check on where the sources of these things are. Uh, which is really interesting to see. The market's at this point where the grows are starting to replicate what the testing labs are measuring them by so that they can kind of implement those same screening procedures internally so they're not caught off guard when things fail at, at, at grows. It's kind of uh, moving your QC internally, uh, not necessarily to replace the, the lab, but just so that you're on the same kind of, you know, grounding as, that they are and you're measuring your, your process the same way that you're being measured in the, in the marketplace. So, so someone's just trying to get in on an entry level. What, what are they looking at all said and done for all the equipment? Um, Plus, obviously, to run it. Yeah, we have a starter kit, which I'll probably have to post back to a group later. I don't want to misquote it, but it's, it's probably two grand, uh, where it gets you all the pipettes and it gets you this stuff and a, a set of reagents to get started with. Um, uh, if, if you're starting off completely naked and you don't have a single pipette or a lab bench to work on. Um, it can be a bit of a learning curve and we, we work people through those things. Uh, I think if, uh, if people have pipetted before and they're familiar with PCR, they usually come in at that Kaibio level and, and that gets, gets you off the ground under 10 grand. Uh, and those folks get a little bit more serious about throughput and are testing multiple samples for, um, for either sex or, or, uh, or um, THC and CBD. Uh, as that platform gets a little bit more traction, we'll start moving some of the, the other tests we have on here is to look for powdery mildew and a couple of their pathogens. Um, and uh, we'll migrate those into the, the Chi bio uh, as more demand builds up to that. All of the assays we have on here, we also have for the Agilent Area, which is this 96 well qPCR system. The gold standard system can run them all. So, so when someone has one of these, do they have to kind of buy the software and packets or you kind of update it as it goes once you have the unit or how does, how does your, your system work there? Yeah, the software is uh, we, basically we deliver it with a download that has the program that runs on here, but it's a really lightweight piece of software and the company mini PCR may have updates as like an iPhone app. I think I have one. Let's see if I have the latest on my phone right here. I think I have a got a new phone. I don't know if I updated it yet. So yeah, there's a, there's a software system here that basically runs on a phone. Let's see if I can get that in front of there. And uh, you know, for instance, here's a, it'll try, it'll try and connect through Bluetooth. I don't have this guy plugged in, so it doesn't need a power source. That's one area that it's not, not, not finding the contact, but um, let's see, you know, it's pretty easy to get this on there and then just edit. You can download the software on a laptop as well if you want to run off a laptop, but most people are going off this phone. Uh, and this thing just walks you through 
um, like here's the one for CBD kind of runs the thing. You know, that's that's the, the programming conditions that run CBD. So it's kind of an interface where you just import what cycling conditions you need and we provide those files uh, and it runs on uh, an Android and on, on OS, OS 10 or whatever this, uh, the, the Mac iOS software. That's awesome. So, so do you see that being able to test for a wider and wider range of stuff in the, in, in the future as far as uh, capability or? Yeah, I think what's what you'll see over time is a lot more genetic markers pinned to the plant's genome that people want to screen for. I know people that are working on trying to figure out the some of the terpenes and what assays are gonna are gonna predict the terpene profiles. I think Philippe Henry's doing a lot of that work. Um, there's also some other people in the in the field uh, that are looking at what might be governing um, seed sex ratio. Like, can you get? There's some some SNPs out there that may um, push plants to be not 50-50, but more, you know, 75, 80, 80-20. Isn't it, I mean, I, I know a lot of people have found, and, and myself as well, that when you breed autos, you tend to have, uh, I've only had bred them once, but even then we tend to have significantly, where we had significantly more males than, than, um, than females. And I've heard that quite frequently with auto breeders. Is that- Oh, interesting. You know, I didn't know that. I, I actually read this in, um, a patent filing from, I think it was New South Genetics, maybe John McKay's group, I think did some work finding some markers uh, in the cannabis genome that might predict this, this effect. Um, so I, I, I don't know if he was using autoflowers or not, but that's a really interesting point. And that's another gene that we're trying to hunt down as well is what, what flowering genes might be involved in, in autoflower. And we have a few candidates after, um, at, we've just sequenced another dozen uh, autoflower um, genomes. And so we're combing through those to look for copy number changes and mutations that might be governing uh, what's going on with autoflower. So that that's another marker we hope to have on the platform in, in, in the coming years. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I don't know what's going on there on the sex ratio thing. Uh, it's, and, and likewise, um, uh, Punja, Zumir Punja just put out some work where they're, they're trying to sleuth out what's going on with hermaphroditism as well. Is there a genetic marker for, for you know, the plant's potential to, to Hermy? That's something that's been on everyone's mind because our, our current sex tests can't discern that. All, all Hermes come up as female. Um, we've had a few folks tell us that there's a few um, Hermes they had that tested male on our UPCR assay and we're still trying to get to the bottom of that. That's, that was something we never expected to have happen. But um, uh, so yeah, I think as more of these markers and knowledge of the genome builds, there's going to be more opportunities to put things on this platform that will, you know, answer different questions people have about the breeding programs they have in place. Very interesting. Um, oh damn, lost my train. Let me pull up my notes here again. Um, oh, uh, so you, before the COVID stuff, I know you were working on some uh, a lot of stuff with canflavin A and canflavin B. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and, and maybe a quick brief for those of the people that aren't familiar with it, what those are to begin with, and then uh, and then a little bit about your work? Oh, okay. So yeah, we were basically trying to hunt down all the genes in the cannabis genome that are involved in canflavin, um, canflavin A and B synthesis. And we, and we put a lot of those into our sequencing chips. Um, the work that we're doing with Arbor and, and Agilent on that front are they're resequencing like mini exomes that we sequence on, on a lot of people's samples that are behind our, our strain C pipeline. We've been padding those sequencing tools with more and more genes. And so we recently added in a lot of the canflavin genes um, because we're interested in what those compounds do. I mean, there's people publishing them as being like 30 times more potent than aspirin and, and maybe playing a role in cancer. And 
Um, I, I, I don't believe they survived the, you know, pyrolysis. They obviously need to, you need to ingest these things differently, but we don't know what genes are governing them. But the other thing that's gotten our attention is cannabis in A. This is something that popped up in the literature very recently as an, a group, an interesting paper in, uh, out of Vietnam. The Vietnamese government, the first thing they did when COVID started going through is they had the researchers informatically screen all the compounds, that active compounds they know in, that exist in plants that grow in Vietnam that were active against, theoretically active in, in silica against SARS-CoV-2. And so they looked for uh, protease inhibitors. Uh, the, the SARS virus is really interesting in, in, in that its genome encodes one really large peptide and then a protease comes and cleaves it into pieces. Uh, that's weird and, and really interesting that it does this. But as a result, the protease inhibitors have become a really important target in, in, in COVID. Um, and they found the top of their list when they scanned something like 4,200 different compounds that they had against SARS was cannabis in A. Uh, it was a top damn hit in their scan. Uh, and so it's got everyone trying to figure out how do we make this thing? Where the hell do you find the thing? Like where did what tissue? I think it's in seeds. Um, and, uh, and who's tracking this? Like it's a really high molecular weight compound. It's like 594. So it falls off a lot of mass spec assays looking for uh, for cannabinoids that are like down in the 300 range. Um, so we got to get on top of how to detect this uh, from an analytical standpoint and see if we can maybe breed for plants that make more of it. Because the, I think the quantities that were found in hemp were really low, like sub sub percentages, maybe down in, in uh, you know, parts per million, um, not, not up at like the 1% like THC or 20%, right? So um, I don't know that it's going to be the right, whether we have to synthesize this compound. It's a really complicated compound to make or whether we can boost the plants uh, or scan for plants that breed that, that make lots of it. I think right now, just no one's looking for it. So we really haven't found any heater strains, if you will, that make cannabis in A. Um, so we're in, the, the, that molecule shares some of the same um, front end pipeline uh, using the cinnamon pathway and, and a couple of 4CL I think is involved in there. So some of the pathway that makes the can flavins is also involved in making can cannabis in A. Uh, so there, and there's only a few papers we can find on this thing. If, I, if anyone finds papers, please share them with me because I've only managed to find like three or four papers in, can in cannabis in A. It's really understudied. Uh, it's pro there's probably people who have access to older journals from other countries that I'm not, I don't have at all my fingers on. So if you find anything, I'd love to hear more about it. Uh, but but I think that's an important topic. That and and and. Um, probably in a, I'm kind of a murder the pronunciation of this, but Q-certain is another one, or Quercetin, I think is how you pronounce it. This is found in more plants than just cannabis, but this was another compound that came up as being a zinc ionophore that can work a lot like HCQ or hydroxychloroquine and, uh, and probably not have the side effects of AFib that we're seeing with HCQ, but it helps move zinc into the cell. And that's the mode of action people think is going on with uh, with chloroquine is that it's moving, it's helping facilitate zinc transmission into the cell to stall the viral replication and, and its RDRP gene. Um, that, that if we can get that out of cannabis, that'd be fantastic. But no, I don't think anyone's tracking these compounds in the testing labs. And that would be a great project is to find compounds in cannabis that potentially play a role in fighting off SARS. And uh, I think the world would welcome it. Uh, there's even a, a preprint that's out for some groups that, that found some cannabis extracts recently in Canada that are fighting off SARS-CoV-2, at least in vitro, but it doesn't seem to be related to THC or CBD if they go through their paper. Uh, the news kind of bent their paper the wrong way, but they have a bunch of extracts in there and the CBD to THC ratio has no bearing or no correlation with the, with the 
the, the, the activity uh, against, uh, against these viruses. So there's something else in their extracts that could be a protease inhibitor or maybe you know, one of these, uh, these other transporters that, that might be playing a role. Uh, and uh, there's there's so much to be to, to be looked at there. So that that's not we're, we can help on the genetic side. We can we can't do anything on the chemistry front. So we need to partner with people in that in that area. But um, there's a I think there's a lot of promise there that we want to keep uh, we want to keep those those molecules uh, on the radar so we can fully understand uh, this plan and not be just playing this you know THC CBD question. There's there's so much more to it. Man, that, that's so interesting, and it, it just goes to show you that there's such such a deeper range of molecules that are medicinally beneficial in the plant that we haven't even remotely even attempted to test for, or document, or map out, or you know, it's not even on our radar, you know. But but here we have very demonstrable results that it's actually helping with something right now, and and I think that's what's so cool about this is that we we still know so little about this plant that we've dumped. You know how many billions of dollars into researching and working with and growing over decades, and and we're still completely just total total infants in, in the knowledge of it. So did you see that? Um, it was a hemp paper. I think it was Carmagnolia that uh, they found small amounts of a new of a new cannabinoid, like maybe maybe back in December. I think it was called cannabimavone. It was supposed to be, be super super potent. That one. No, that's THCP. That's a, that's a oh, different THCP, one. Also, yeah. from, also from Italy. Yeah, we can't keep track of these things, right? They're coming out every month. <laughs> great, great, great. Yeah, which new ultra strong cannabinoid? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The interesting thing about THCP is um, the, the Dimitrix group at CanMed presented that they found that in yeast before it was published in the plant. Uh, they noticed when they were, they, they cloned THC synthase into yeast and they noticed when they fed it like octanoic acid instead of hexanoic acid, out came THCP. I don't think they fully appreciated its potency. Um, they just noticed that they could change the input carbon and they'd get different tails coming out of, uh, of the other end. So that's kind of an interesting story on synthetic biology, but no, the cannabimavone one, I've never heard of before, but I think it was actually described, um, Richard Rose knew about it long before this paper came out. It was described once before in hemp and I think it got re-described and better characterized more recently uh, in Carmagnolia. And, uh, that, that's that's another one that we got no idea what that thing does, but it's, I think it wins the board of having the coolest uh, cannabinoid name. Hands so, down. <laughs> so let me ask you a question on, on something that I've been working on uh, or at least exploring. Um, uh, well, anyways, uh, something I've had the pleasure of being exposed to. Maybe, maybe that's the better way of putting it. Um, uh, so tell us more about, you know, the groups of alcohol bonded cannabinoids, because they aren't really studied much, CBT and some of those others that just aren't really talked about much. They're very hard to kind of capture and isolate and, and do much study with, but uh, they are out there. And, and some of them have a highly medical potential for things like um, uh, Crohn's disease and some others. Have you done anything with, with, with any of those uh, no, alcohol no, bonded I, I ones at all? Where of those? Are these, is this like CBL or do you say CBT? CBT. Oh, I think you mentioned this last time to me, and I, yeah, it was, it was still still new to me now. But no, I don't even know how those are. That's that's probably gonna be a question for Mark Skeldown. I, I don't even know how those things are made. Um, I mean, a lot of these these cannabinoids um, that are that are on the list are, are metabolites or oxidative byproducts, and I don't know. I don't even know where those ones fall. So I don't know a damn thing about those. M much much more to learn. 
Oh, that's fine. So what are some of the other um, areas of research that you've been focusing on, uh, aside from your COVID work and, and some of the other stuff that we've talked about with flavonoids? What are some of the other areas that you're working on as far as uh, sample tests and, and other things that uh, uh, you, you're uh, currently researching or, or maybe were up until COVID came to be? Yeah, so until COVID, I was on this, um, we were doing a lot of methylation analysis and a lot of RNA analysis um, on that genome paper. So there's a Jamaican lion genome paper out there that had another 42 genomes lined up against it. Uh, we sequenced a, a trio, a mother, father, and the offspring of Jamaican lion, and then a bunch of other siblings, uh, and then began to build copy number maps. I mean, the thing that's so crazy about the plant is the, when you look at the copy number maps, these are looking at really large sections of the genomes between the plants, and you're just seeing massive deletions and insertions all along the chromosomes. I mean, it's, it's just one of these really, really plastic genomes that is very different uh, cultivar to cultivar. And you would not see this in human. This really like frightens. So I, I spent all my time in human biology. When I see genomes of just plastic, it just blows my mind because I'm like, oh God, we're never going to get to the end of this thing. Um, like apple trees, right? I guess. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's uh, the, the polymorphism rate in this thing is just outstanding. And uh, it, it's, it does beg the question of what our reference genomes are. Because right now, the evidence we have now is we shouldn't have one, that, that we really can't just take a type two plant and say, voila, we've, that's the reference, map all your sequencing against that one reference, because there's probably a lot of plants out there that have genes Jamaican lion doesn't have, and that would, that would create a bias. And so we need to create a pan genome, if you will, which is reference, a type one reference, a type two reference, a type three reference, and then preferably references that have a lot of these other regions of the genome that seem to be quite disparate between the plants that we surveyed today so that we, we, we collect a collage of all the potential genetic content that could be in a cannabis plant. Because I don't think a single plant's going give to give you all of it. It might give you 90%, but there's a good 10% that's probably different amongst all the other plants out there that you need to build kind of a meta genome, if you will, or a uh, what we call a pan genome. So we're working on that. That's one area where we're sequencing lots of other genomes to get better maps and building different references. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of work with HiC and tools to build chromosomes and understand all these structural variations. And that's just to make sure we build better tools. I mean, the, it, when you don't have these references made, it's really hard to design PCR assays that, that can adequately tease microbes away from plants. Um, a lot of, we see a lot of entrants come into the field and try and do this and they do it without looking at the reference and they end up having primers that cross react to all the wrong things. So. Um, uh, that, that's one area we're working on. We've been putting a lot of effort into CanMed. We're still going to have CanMed this year. So it, it almost didn't happen, but it, it's looking like the mayor and the governor are going to allow it to happen. This is a conference down in Pasadena in late September. So um, they'll be doing things to spread people out and, you know, amend by all those rules. But uh, it, it's looking more and more like uh, the, the mayor and the governor are going to open things up by then and that we'll be able to have conferencing happen. I think there's a limit like under 2000 people and you can have the event. Uh, go on. So um, we put some effort into that, making sure that all of those uh, those things are happening. And then we've also been updating um, Canopedia. So folks haven't been there in a while. There's now tools on Canopedia that will scan your genes of interest to look for point mutations that might be changing the way CBD synthase is behaving. I mean, that's one area that everyone wants to find a CBD synthase that doesn't leak as much. 
we don't have the right answer for that yet, but the way to find that is to be looking at you, the, the mutations that are in your CBD synthase genes, because there's likely to be one that someone will find that has a wider spread in the ratio of leak of THC leaking that occurs. Uh, and so those tools are now activated for THC, CBD, and CBC synthase, and we're starting to open them up for a lot of the flowering genes. So the, the, the web reports there are becoming a little bit more 23andMe-like for each plant, where we can kind of pinpoint what gene has a mutation and which one doesn't, and a lot of discovery uh, uh, can be done there. So uh, that's kind of been my focus, is just kind of pumping up those tools and making sure we can extract much more information out of everyone's sequence that's been through here. Very cool. And it's, it's neat to see that, uh, you know, for, for a very affordable price, people can actually get into this level of, of understanding of their own, uh, you know, plants and their own, their own cultivars that they're working with. Um, I, was, I was mentioning earlier about the, with apples, um, you can take every seed out of uh, an apple tree off of a single cultivar, even from an F45. And you'll still have uh, every single one's a different pheno. There, there's absolutely no no difference. Almost all of your cultivars are clone only, just like bananas. Um, uh, well, I don't know what the mutation rate is in bananas, but I know in apples, uh, it's super high. But that's how Johnny Appleseed actually came to be so popular, or, or was because yeah. he's planted. He he did, basically did like millions and millions and millions of of phenos. <laughs> searching through and he, on, he, on Instagram there's a great story on Instagram about kind of the history of trademark and and varietals and apples and like what we can learn about that in the cannabis field I remember reading something about this no uh, I wasn't the one that posted it but um but yeah so that it's just you know especially with plants you know it gets very a lot of plants are, are incredibly hard to predict and and even with all the incredible technology and all the tools that we have today they still commercially can't get apples to, to stabilize, right? So, so, and we have, you know, CRISPR and all these crazy tools that we have that we yeah, can yeah. really bend it to our will and we still can't make it work, right? So. Yeah, yeah. These plants yeah, are, you know. are, are, are tricky bastards, yeah. Well, you know, we have been, it's the cloning side of things. Um, yeah, we, oh. we finally have the first glimpse of how long the telomeres are. I mean, that we didn't know that until December. Uh, so that was, uh, that was really fun to see that I, I, um, no, it was after December. It was actually January where that popped out. That was, uh, so Sergi Korins is a guy who wrote one of the best DNA assemblers out there called Canoe. And he recently updated it to something called Hi-Fi Canoe that handles a new flavor of sequencing from PacBio. And he got interested in the cannabis genome because now that we have these really highly accurate reads from PacBio we've never had before, the plant genomes are all buttoning up really beautifully. Like they just did the Sequoia genome, which is like a, I think it's like 20 gig. It's one of the biggest genomes out there. Uh, and it's been a real mess for like five or six years. We haven't been able to put this in together. And this thing just got buttoned up beautifully once this hi-fi um, technology came out. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's in better shape than the cannabis genome because the cannabis genome is more polymorphic than, than Sequoia and has more repeats than Sequoia. Uh, and so it's harder to assemble a genome that's like a 20th the size because of the complexity of cannabis compared to sequoia. So a lot of the assemblers, uh, the real experts in DNA assembly have turned their attention now just this year in cannabis because they realized that's the next prize. That's the next hardest agricultural genome um, next to sequoia. So they've all started kind of semi-competing and playing around collegially and assembling uh, the hi-fi data we have public on our site. Um, and so we've got the Broad to, to chip in, um, PacBio has been chipping in and, um, and Sergi Corin. And so Sergi's assembly came out and it's the first time we've seen the telomeres of any, of any significant length. And some of them are 40 KB long. I mean, these are huge. 
uh, some of them are, are 1200 bases. Like to give you perspective, like I think some human telomeres are only like 500 bases. They can, they can vary tremendously in length, but the length of them uh, is oftentimes reflective of your molecular age. Uh, so like Dolly the lamb's telomeres kind of disappeared and it didn't live as long. And, and we, we don't have evidence of this, but we suspect that this might be happening in clonal replication of cannabis is that after you clone something like 50 times, it's telomeres are toast and it's no longer starts, starts having chromosomal um, instability. Uh, and the telomeres are important to remain stable in cannabis because most of the genetic content is out in the tips of the chromosome. It's not in the centromere, although, although THC and CBD look like they're more centromeric, a lot of the other genes that, are, that we're relying on are all getting swapped and exchanged out by the tips of the chromosome. So if those telomeres erode, there's gonna be hell to pay uh, a, a, over time, which is where I think maybe you know, some lines probably clone forever because they might have really good telomerase genetics and other ones might be really susceptible to decay over time. We, we don't know these things, but we can now measure the length of telomeres in cannabis as of like uh, probably January, mid-January this year. And it's kind of crazy to look at these things. I've just never seen repeat structures like that go on for 40,000 letters long of all the same five letter sequence over and over again. And there might be one or two subtle differences and the sequencing now is so good that it can bang, separate those and turn them into different chromosomes. It's like, it's mind blowing. These things in the human genome have remained, particularly the centromeres have remained an enigma since I worked on the project 20 years ago. <laughs> and only today have they like got, gotten across tip to tip on some chromosomes with the human. And now this new pack bio thing's out and we're starting to be able to do this in all genomes everywhere and sort out a lot of this dark matter that's in genomes that may, I don't know, maybe it's gonna tell us something about, about, about cloning if we're, maybe we'll be stuck on cloning longer than we realize. But um, it sounds like from your perspective on apples, we may be, on cloning for a really long time, unless we go, you know, obviously outdoor hemp, it's not, you know, practical to, to hyper clone like that. You're gonna go with seeds, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't seen anyone pull off apomixis yet. I've not seen anyone kind of, I've heard some talk about synthetic seeds, but I'm not certain that's cheaper than making clones right now. So uh, yeah, the polymorphism problem is an issue and we're gonna get, uh, you know, drastic phenotypes. Fortunately, I don't, I don't know if it's playing a big role in the, in the cannabinoid content. You know, it seems like those seem to be somewhat stable amongst siblings. Uh, I mean, I don't know, what's your experience there? Have you, have you, do you ever see like sibling plants um, that end up, uh, if you've I guess if you've typed them all, they're all coming from type one parents. You tend to have all type one plants, but maybe on the type three side, the hemp farmer question is, do you see a, a radical spread between type three siblings? Cause they all should be type three offspring in terms of the whether it's bouncing above 0.3 or 0.5 i i would imagine i haven't so 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 i i, ha, I can't tell you at that just at 0.3 to 0.5 what i can tell you is at least with my experience doing aquaponic versus soil trials over and over and over well, again there you that, go yeah uh, our, our turf with the exact same cuts off the exact same moms so that we have the same moms almost always in soil or aquaponics to start off with. So take the same cuts to make sure that the genetics are exactly identical. So there's no variation at all on every test that we've ever done. We did not, none with seed, all, all with clone, just for the sake of uniformity. And we found CBD expression is significantly higher. Uh, THC expression uh, on average is, is higher, but less so than CBD. And total terpene expression is just off the charts higher in the aquaponics, like like just laughably higher. 
Um, do you think that's um, is that jazz? to me? I think it's more endophyte and secondary microbial stimulation to the the immune system of the plant. Triggering pathway. Yeah. So you're basically, I, I love to explain it to people is it's like vaccines, right? I want to give the maximum number of non-pathogenic microbe exposure to the plant's root system so we can then under, you know, know what's in the neighborhood to make things to defend itself. Uh, and, and by exposing it to the most number of things that are non-pathogenic by giving it both terrestrial and aquatic microbes, it gives it the most number of reference points to, to, to make stuff and, and, and metabolize. And That's terpene. a good plan. I mean, I think that's what's going on with COVID right now is that we've got populations out there that have seen some of the ancestral strains that are less virulent and that's given them protection against the current thing that's more virulent. What you're seeing is in the most sedentary part of the population that, you know, the, the nursing homes and what have you, they don't get as much cold traffic, right? The, the, the cold, the coronaviruses aren't going through there as quickly as they are going through the kindergartens, right? So all the kids are immune to this thing, uh, or they fight it off through the innate immune system. It's either antibodies or innate immune system. They seem to like, you know, be fine, and they think it's because they have prior T cell and B cells from uh, from the last year's cold, and it's giving them some partial protection against this one. Whereas, as you migrate into the more sedentary part of the population, they're not seeing as as much. You know, th their contact map is not as geometric as like a, a kid in kindergarten, right? He probably touches stuff that like a hundred other kids have touched who've touched a hundred other people. Like their contact maps go geometric really fast. A nursing home contact map is like maybe the nurse and a couple family members, right? So those people don't build up the immune repertoire that you're talking about and in comes something slightly more virulent and bam, uh, they can't fight it. Um, so if you're priming the immune system in the plant with aquaponics, that's, that's a grand idea. It's, it sounds like it would, uh, it would probably be be pumping up the terpene pathway and a, a lot of the other things that are connected to making cannabinoids. Oh yeah, and we've seen that in our test results going back all the way to 2013. So, um, or I'm sorry, yeah, 2013. So uh, one other question I was really wanting to ask you and I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time. Uh, and I think maybe I asked it before, but I, I don't remember. So I'm just gonna ask you again. Um, there's a lot of people that make claims about cannabis having the potential for horizontal gene transfer with nearby plants, especially in regards to terpenes. I've heard it from three separate people. I've oh, never yeah. seen any evidence of it, uh, a direct evidence. And I've heard different theories on, on it being microbial related or some others, but that being a theory on how, again, this is all something I'm just repeating that I've heard. Um, that the, the reason why cannabis has such a wide range of cannabinoids and terpenes is because it has the ability to kind of incorporate those into itself. Um, is there any well, truth to that based on anything that you're aware of with, and, and have you found anything in your testing that gives supports any of that evidence wise? So I can't say I've directly looked for that. So what do I, what I can say, um, kind of floating around in my dusty mind here on this is that, that yeah, microbes have terpene synthase genes, but they tend to have fewer um, intron and exons. Um, so they tend to be more compact genomes. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if those are going, there's lateral gene transfer in microbes all the time. Um, endophytes might have a better shot of doing that with cannabis. Now, the interesting thing about cannabis um, terpene synthase genes is they do have a little bit of a signature to them that would probably highlight this if it ever went plant to microbe, is that they tend to have really long introns. So the genes are, in, in, so if, uh, let me back up an intron and exon. Exons are, one analogy, is to think about your hard drive being fragmented where your program is actually written in little pieces spread out across the hard drive. And the more defragmented it is, uh, that's kind of like having really big introns and genes. Introns are the regions in between the exons. The exons get excised to make the protein. 
So your protein could have like 10 exons, but the way they sit on the genome is they're spread out with a bunch of intergenic sequences that don't code for any amino acids, but kind of space them out for some God knows regulatory reason we don't yet understand. The interesting thing about cannabis terpene synthase genes is they tend to have very, very long introns, unusually long. And I, I, if we found one of those, that would be a telltale sign that maybe it moved in, in a different direction. Um, I, I, and likewise, I bet the sequence alone would probably have a higher homology to the cannabis references than if, let's say if it went to hops or something. Um, so those are, those are, are uh, I haven't looked for that. That's interesting. I, I wouldn't say it can't happen. Uh, and well, we probably yeah. have tools now to be able to hunt it down. Well, you have the, uh, the alleged story from Mr. Kyle Cushman on planting the, the strawberry kush in the strawberry field and getting the strawberry terpenes. So uh, I'm just- Oh, really? I, I didn't know about that. All right. Well, well again, who, who knows if that's really what happened or whether or not it just happened to be that the, those plants, because it was nearby, it happened, I don't know, some other environmental factor, who knows, right? Wasn't she talking about that? Where, I don't know, she was claiming, I think, I remember what was it? That, that when you plant with other plants that it can, you know, take on traits of stuff planted nearby, you know, like flavors or smells or. Well, I know there's, there was someone talking, I forget who it was, one of the uh, regenerative folks was talking about chamomile, greatly increasing THC expression, uh, which I thought was kind well, of- Well, now there's something that could be going on with the microbiome here and that like, if, if you look at some of the work in Arabidopsis and you, and you anti-microbial, um, like you, you put on um, antibiotics and you fumigate the plant antibiotics, it's, it's terpene expression completely shifts, right? So what does that tell me is that, well, if, if the microbial flora in the soil is shared between plants that have the same ancestral terpene synthase kind of pathways, you might see them bend in the same direction. Like if both plants are capable of making limonene and you have a particular soil environment that promotes limonene, they might both start making it because the microbes are all communicating the same language. Um, I, I would dig into um, David Sinclair's paper on this called Xenohormesis, Sensing the Chemical Cues of Other Species. Um, that's a really good paper that will blow your mind on how cannabis plants, well, it wasn't about cannabis plants, but plants in general uh, tend to be expressing uh, certain secondary metabolites to trigger and change and alter the metabolism of the organisms when they spread their seeds. Uh, so if you look at the reversitrol pathway in grapes and in other plants, this is meant to, to, to mess with the mTOR pathway and signal um, caloric restrictions coming. Like we uh, the, the soils change, the environments change, the plant makes metabolites that tell the things that spread its seeds that you better prepare for winter here or you better prepare for starvation or caloric restriction because I want your body to be as properly prepared for this so my seed goes as far as possible. Uh, that's the thesis behind xenohormesis and it's kind of a mind-blowing concept, but I think if you take that down to the microbiome level, there's probably something going on there that the same soil environments might produce the similar bend in the terpene profile of, of, of closely related plants. Yes, yeah, that's kind of that was kind of my my thought too. Is, is that you know th there's a lot of evidence that that certain micro, uh, microbial uh, populations will, will increase pop you know uh, certain expressions of certain terpenes. And and again, if if the nearby plants are having really good success with lemonine defending against the local aphid population, they're going to communicate that through the microbial chain. There's heavy evidence through that, especially through mycelial networks. So it absolutely makes sense that that would trigger some kind of secondary 
communication yeah, yeah. system to, to increase production of that. So, and many parts of those pathways are conserved across across plants. So, um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the responses, uh, you know, are, are kind of harmonized. All right, I Absolutely. think I've got to get some kids to bed. Actually, I might. I didn't realize it's uh it's eleven. I'm getting dinged over here. No, no worries. Um, I appreciate it, your, your time. Why don't you tell everybody how to find you and your company and uh, uh, how to get one of your awesome PCRs and uh, oh, how yeah, to so you, uh, online. Thank you so much for the time here. Uh, we're, you can find us at Medicinal Genomics. Um, uh, all of the information about this, the, the different products we sell are there. Uh, we also manage the CanMed conference every year. That's uh, we try to get everyone together to have discussions like this for three days in a row. Um, a lot of exciting stuff presented there from synthetic biology all the way to, you know, analytical chemistry and, and what are the right growing techniques. There's a couple um, good um, kind of advancement in, in growing that's going to be going on there from panels to, to talks this year. Uh, so that's it. I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, Facebook at uh, usually Kevin underscore McKernan. You can find me at those three places. Uh, I've got an Instagram handle as well. I think it's, I think there's a 73 in it though. Um, so yeah, you can find me there. It's Kevin underscore McKernan underscore 73 for his Instagram. There you go. Kazar 73, one of the best dead shows ever. Thanks again for your time. Thanks again for clarifying a bunch of information. I know a lot of people have uh, interesting ideas about the, the SARS-CoV stuff. I know I was, myself was a little bit mistaken having misread the, the paper the first time. So thanks for coming on and taking the time to actually bring forth the uh, uh, proper educational uh, content on this on this issue, especially in a time of uh, such disinformation out there. Yeah, and thank you for for you know making these things happen. It's important to spread the word on this. This stuff is medicine, and we got to get uh, we got to get all the brains together to sort it out because uh, there's there's information there's decades to centuries of information in people's heads that are not in the traditional way that we do science, and uh, we need to interface and learn from all you guys on on, on how to make this thing. Uh, how to make this thing sing. Uh, and so I, I like that actually. I find it to be a real, a real challenge that we're, uh, the, the, the scientific establishment has a lot of its own problems that you, that you can, I'm sure you guys are aware of. And so I kind of like this hybrid world of working uh, one, one foot in both camps because it's, uh, it's a lot more practical. Oh yeah, and you know, a lot of great information. I wanted to thank you for all the great information to ponder on tonight and, and also to decipher, I might, I might say. But I yeah, wanted yeah. to say bye since you're calling, but uh, finally got my stuff straightened out. So I wanted to say goodbye. <laughs> Thanks again. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. We always love the incredible amount of information that you share with us. Yeah. Yeah, I learned so much talking to you guys. So uh, anytime. <laughs> Thanks again, bud. All right. Take all right. Care. Take care. That's Bye -bye. being humble, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Well, that was uh, an incredible episode. I think that was the one of the most interesting and in-depth uh, conversations we've had in quite a while. Uh, I know my mind is completely blown uh, after that. That was uh, quite a cool, uh, quite a cool talk here. So, a uh, big cool. thank you again to Kevin. Um, All right, uh, I got to run. I got. Looks like I got to pick somebody up somewhere. All right, I didn't even know they're, they're out and about. <laughs> Well, uh, happy uh, child hunting. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, guys. Take care. Be safe. Be safe, Kevin. Be safe, yeah. brother. All right. Cheers. Take care. Cheers. So that was uh, that was incredible, and uh, always look forward to having Kevin on. And um, uh, yeah, always good times. Um, uh, Roger, what's new with you and uh, and your farm? Uh, I'll do a quick thing uh, here before we switch over. We got our 
our brand new Aquapunch. Oh, you can't see the label. Aquapunch from Organic Innovations. Uh, we have, um, it's a live, uh, live diamonds. Um, and uh, we have uh, quite the turp profile on over 1% beta carfilene, almost 1% lemonine. Uh, so uh, yeah, that, that carfilene, lemonine, myrcene, pinene. Are the the high ones on this one, and uh, yeah, you you you, it's smooth as glass, man. I'll tell you what, it's the smoothest diamonds I've smoked in a long time. And then we also have some other great stuff. We have some pure Kush, some GMO cookies, some wedding cake, some uh, Bubba Kush, some Chem Dog coming out, some live diamonds. So be sure to look for the next round of concentrates uh, out there, and then uh, in a couple of weeks we'll have some flower out there as well in the universe. So be sure to look for some more products aquaponically grown or organic from Organic Innovations in your favorite uh, or Oklahoma dispensary. Uh, if they do not carry our products, be sure to have them email us uh, over at uh, or. Uh, sales at organic-ok.com. Uh, alrighty, and uh, if you're looking for aquaponic nutrients, uh, check out aqu uh, trueaquaponics.com. All right, uh, what's up with you, Roger? Well, uh, we we uh, a couple of, we're getting you know we're starting our natural farming um, project, and we uh, we built our cedar boxes today. We built like four or five because uh, we got two different locations of the partners and then we're going to have a couple of gifts to other people like-minded individuals in the area we're going to gift them a cedar box we're all going to start our imo collections and i'm um, also uh, just receiving my dried herbs and we're going to be starting our ohn um so i'll be in this next week or so i should be rehydrating my dried herbs and and um and then we're gonna. I, I don't. I'm pretty sure I can get uh, fresh ginger root, and and uh, I know I can get garlic. So I can't wait to do that. And um, so that's really exciting for us to do that. And uh, other than that, uh, we got a. You know, as everybody knows, we got a real late start on the farm, but we've got have got about almost a thousand plants of different peppers, tomatoes, uh, a lot of really cool heirlooms, and I love peppers. So I got every year I buy all kind of different. I, th I know Steve loves peppers too. We love, you know, if you like to grow and you like to cook, peppers are fantastic. And, you know, they're just, it's just, I just love it. It's uh, the, the different diversity you get in your greenhouse. So um, ordered a bunch of stuff from, uh, from the supplier out in Colorado for our grow bags and, um, and my spray stakes and such like that. And uh, yeah, we got, I got um, a, a shout out to uh, our friend, Brooke Sheffield up in Asheville. He's going to help us out with some polyfilm and save me a few duckies, you know, which is really awesome to, you know, thank you, Steve, again, for having me, putting up with me on the show for three years. And you know what, meeting people like, you know, everybody we meet from Kevin to whoever, you know, and all the friend Chris Trump, you know, we all have, long, uh, Chris is so great. You know, if you, if you do reply to or go to reach out to Chris Trump, he'll, he'll reply to you. It's one of those people that really follow up. But a shout out to uh, Brooke up in um, Asheville for um, helping us out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you're putting some in the mail, I don't want to see it. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. Yeah, so if y'all are in Asheville or, or Greenville or in Tennessee, look up Lotus Farm Supplies. I'm not sure if that's the exact name, but uh, that's that's the um, that's the uh, farm uh, gardens they got. And they're real. They're very knowledgeable. And they can hook you up with anything you got. So 
that's about it. We're just working hard, trying to keep up. We're going to have a nice fall and winter harvest. I'm really excited about it. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Checks in the mail. For those of you guys that, that can see this, this is a that's single. pretty, man. It's a whole one gram diamond. Uh, wow. As we like to see. Kind of, kind of nice. You don't see a single, single diamonds that big in a container very often. But the uh, real happy with this latest batch. And man, just uh, it comes out so terpy with the aquaponics. It's just uh, so good, so good. <laughs> well, we had a lively chat when I when I had technical difficulties. Yeah, yeah but I also wanted to give a big shout out to our listeners. Big thank you to everyone listening. Today we hit eight thousand subscribers on the YouTube channel. So big thank you to that. We have our our little helper here. This is Gizmo, the little rescue cat we found on the street the other day, and uh, she's been there keeping everybody happy. <laughs> um but yeah so thanks everybody for helping us get to eight thousand. uh we just had our 200th wow. episode and um man <laughs> marty and i never never thought we'd get to this point and certainly never thought we'd be doing content as cool as the stuff we're doing tonight so thanks everybody for listening and thanks for all of your support over the years um anything else new with you roger no, not pretty much. Uh, you know, unless I start getting into like personal life. Uh, the sure. is, uh, Amy's doing much okay? better and getting ready for her last uh, little operation. And she might be able to come home here in a month or so after recovering from the awesome. final, you know, thing. So, you know, uh, we made a lot of headway, you know, in our relationship because it's been rough for the last three or four years. And so I'm just happy. I'm very happy right now. I wrote five songs on guitar last night. I was so happy. Awesome. So you know, I didn't write work, I just wrote music. You know? Cool. So um, we have uh, just kind of getting everything into full swing. We've been retooling some of the greenhouse, some of the space we have in there is for um, setting up racks to do uh, vegged out one gals uh, to try and switch up our business model a little bit into some more mature clones. So that's working out really well, getting that geared up for that. Getting fourteen thousand, getting all of our fourteen thousand plants going. We're almost done with the irrigation in the back. We got the the pumps and everything going, mostly on the irrigation. We got the the big four thousand gallon premix tank uh, up and plumbed up today, so that was pretty cool. Um, the team's doing a great job with that, and then uh, we're just a couple of days away from finishing up, getting everything mounted, putting the drip lines in the field, connecting them up to the manifolds, and going. So we're probably seven to 12, maybe 14 days away from getting plants in the ground. Finally, after a whole bunch of uh, waiting on parts and waiting on this and waiting on that and struggling with all the COVID stuff and, you know, kind of coming yeah. back from Africa after all that stuff had kind of already kind of happened. So um, to, just trying to get that going and then uh, uh, have a couple of cool new projects in the works that I can't really talk about yet, but we got... Uh, <laughs> some really neat stuff going on. Um, I've been busier than you can possibly believe. We're juggling all these different things right now. So uh, lots of cool things. And then um, we've had a lot of people picking up with the, with the True Aquaponics subscription service. We've had quite a few farms uh, 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 joining us in the last two months, especially uh, with COVID and stuff. Seems like there's a, a lot more people that maybe uh, uh, had to let some people go or or maybe their their employees got sick and they don't have that person they were relying on anymore 
uh, for dosing their nutrients or, or whatnot. Um, so uh, definitely seeing an uptick in that. And um, yeah, just, just overall, just being busy, 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 just, just tons of stuff going on. And uh, yeah, just some, some cool stuff in the works. And then uh, trying to think if there's anything else I can talk about publicly right now. <laughs> I don't think so. I better be careful on that one. But uh, yeah, it, uh, mostly just, just, good things is slowly moving forward and uh trying to get ready for for the summer you know just getting ready to switch to uh starting days a lot earlier because uh, it's too hot you know and um mm-hmm. it looks like we're gonna you know have some, some another wet spell and uh coming up before too long so just trying to get ready for that in regards to tractor equipment and you know right re- regularly breaking uh <laughs> parts on the tractor while we're, we're tilling and having to repair them on the on the plow and i don't know that and just just bug stuff have a great new guide we um we had a couple of test plants we put throughout the field just to see what bugs were going to get out there and one of one of them happened to be right next to a tree that had a bunch of woolly aphids which don't attack they don't feed on cannabis really um but they will land on it make it look ugly uh so we did a quick i did a quick how-to video on how to how to get rid of them today that's uh, quite entertaining if you haven't watched it yet. So uh, be sure to check that out. It's quite, it's short, but I guarantee you'll get a good laugh. So, <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I think I'm just rambling at this point. Um, be sure to hit that like and subscribe button if you enjoy this content. Thank you everyone for your continued support. Um, you can find this on audio format on your favorite podcast application. I posted on pretty much all of them at this point, including Spotify um and then also uh, itunes google wherever you look for them and then also we have them available on a video format on youtube uh, and a couple of other places out there on the web so uh, thanks a lot for your continued support and we'll catch you guys again on thursday with another really awesome and informative guest take care and thanks for your continued 